Hello and welcome to Earthcast, a platform for discussions about bridging the resource gap between people and planet. I am Olivia Taylor, or Olivia Earth on the socials, your host, and I will be interviewing a series of change makers, thinkers and disruptors, and asking them about their areas of expertise. Together, we will discover fresh perspectives and the most useful levers in society for change. The main question that we will explore is how are trade-offs made between people, planet and profit? More specifically, how do we solve wicked problems and make decisions at the margin? If you would like to hear more from Earthcast, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. Today I have joining me a filmmaker who focuses on stories that matter. Welcome Jolyn Minard. Jo is an award-winning South African director who I've often heard described as fearless. Her films have screened at many prestigious festivals and for her documentary work, she is one of the Mail and Guardian's top 200 young South Africans, Glamour Woman of the Year, as well as a member of the prestigious 21 Icon family. Jo's passions lie in capturing intimate, insightful portraits that challenge perspectives and inspire new thought. Joe and I actually met a few years ago when I was on a youth forum for people and wildlife run by the International Fund for Animal Wildlife. I was fangirling really hard, as I already knew about um, Joe's documentary, Unearthed, which is about the fracking industry, um, particularly in the Karoo. We met briefly and I got a copy of Unearthed, which I still have today. Uh, however, I was also watching a lovely Johnson's ad the other day, which features one of my favorite Cape Town local artists, Amy Ayanda, and I also noticed that you directed that as well. But I digress. Since watching Unearthed, I've been wondering, what issue is most concerning you at the moment, and what is inspiring your next award-winning documentary? Well, firstly, thank you for having me and for that very generous introduction. I feel like I've just had um, the daily affirmation that I so desperately required. So thank you for, um, for those kind words. In terms of issues that are you know, concerning me or inspiring me at the moment, I mean, I think there's so many, right? We only have to sort of look around at the world, the world around us right now. Um, but I think for me in my work, it's, it's always something, it's, just, it's an issue or a story that, that strikes a chord personally. You know, it's usually out of circumstances that I find myself in or something that I'm uh, personally drawn to, to explore, to express. Um, I know that like other filmmakers who have sort of different approaches where it's slightly more sort of strategic and intellectualizing aspects of, of topics they want to explore. For me, I, I sort of really have to respond to it on an intuitive level. So that's usually kind of how I, I stumble into the stories that I work on. I mean, I think of Unearth was, was really quite an accidental uh, discovery. I, I mean, I, I was I, I was born in the career and I, I grew up there and I sort of was, there were these rumors of something called fracking that was being proposed. And I knew nothing about it, but as a young South African, I was quite interested in what it could mean from a economic development point of view, knowing that the Karoo, you know, really lacks job creation and, and opportunity. So I was quite a sort of controversial figure at the dinner table, my dad being a farmer and all farmers in the Karoo being quite opposed to, to shell gas extraction from a sort of environmental point of view. So that was an interesting adventure that then sort of ended up taking uh, three or four years and then resulted in a, in a feature film, feature documentary that, you know, took me to the United States, sort of the home of fracking, so to speak, where I um, spent several months on my own with a camera really just documenting what was happening on the ground. 
Um, but I think since then, you know, like I remember shortly after Unearthed, I, uh, this amazing woman, um, Hillary, who was sort of like my fixer on, on the ground in the States. She was just this incredibly generous soul who I think she was like in her 60s or 70s, drove me around the country um, and, and just was so kind in letting me sleep like on her couch and things. And she sort of sadly passed away a couple of months after Unearthed came out. And then I sort of that sort of responded to the idea of loss and the idea of aging with a, a short film sort of documentary called Vama Veronica, which really explores um, sort of, yeah, the idea of aging and aging alone as well as um, um, Alzheimer's, um, which was in that the sort of very generous gentleman who allowed me to film him in his retirement home. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, 2019, I made a film called Womanhood, which was a wonderful brand collaboration with First for Women Insurance and Vice um, that really allowed me creative freedom to create a body of work that would in some way place a finger on the pulse of what it means to be a woman in South Africa, particularly with just the staggering gender-based violence that women in South Africa face. And um, last year I made a music video that sort of explored or interpreted manhood, you know, this idea of, of an ode to men out there who are showing up and doing the work, you know, trying to sort of establish that there are men out there who are unlearning and, and making themselves vulnerable, you know, definitely a big impact uh, or sort of big, uh, yeah, impression from, from Black Lives Matter and the loss of George Floyd and Collins Causa locally. So I kind of, yeah, for me, much it's more of an organic process. It really has to be something that moves me deeply uh, for me to be able to respond authentically. Um, and I also enjoy kind of debunking the format itself. Yeah, I, I sort of, I'm always quite controversial at film, at film uh, expos and festivals where I speak about, you know, Making an Earth, which was a featured documentary, but it was really, really tough to make it because it's just sadly, the documentary form is really under-supported in South Africa. Um, I think with the SABC and just sort of funding is quite a challenge here and it's not the easiest uh, thing to complete a, a feature documentary. So I'm always encouraging filmmakers, you know, if there's a topic that you want to talk about or explore faster than what it takes to make a feature doc, which is easily, you know, four or five years, um, look at short films, look at um, different, like, you know, the music video was in like a, a different, change of pace for me last year, look at Insta stories, look at photography, look at art. You know, I think there's many ways in which we can tell stories that matter. And I think one can continually um, reinvent the, the, the medium that you're using to tell, to sort of share your message as well. Thank you so much for sharing, Joe. And I also wanted to know, so how do you think about telling your next story uh, given what you've learned from unearthed and the whole process of storytelling and then further from that you know i'm really interested in in fracking um and and about one particular question that i'll ask you a little bit later but what is your worst myth about the fracking industry that you would like to dispel hmm. so unearthed was a, a film that i made when i was really young i mean i was 21 when i started working on it and um my main focus then was really just getting to the bottom of things from a from a like an investigative point of view, um, rather than it was about film craft or, or style. You know that was not even on my radar. You know I just had so much on my shoulders to 
to do the story justice in terms of how much time I'd spent researching this and how many incredible you know, sources I had and very generous people who allowed me to interview them and allowed me into their home. So for me, there was, that was like really my main focus with Unearthed was, I suppose, doing right by the story and, and presenting a really a sort of a nuanced perspective that also asked big questions at the end, admitting that I'm also just a filmmaker and this is sort of what I found and, you know, how can this body of work contribute to the overall conversation? Um, and I think, you know, from there, I, I kind of wanted to return more to exploring the other end of the spectrum, which is more the aspects of storytelling, of, of style, of, of, of sort of film craft, of finding my voice, um, because Unearth was kind of far more on that end of the spectrum of being more sort of journalistic. Um, so I think how I tell stories is, is constantly changing. You know, it's, um, it's, it's really asking many questions before you set off. It's sort of, what are we exploring? What's the best way to do that? And, and how can we capture it in a way that, um, that does the story justice while also creating something that's really powerful or beautiful to watch? Um, so I think for me, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a journey as much as that is the most cliche word. But over the last decade, if I just look at who I was 10 years ago, starting out on an earth and, and where I am now, um yeah I've really enjoyed the opportunities to, opportunities to be able to uh flex and to find myself and, and to continually update myself I think that's like a big thing that I that I'm grateful for, for what I'm able to do as a film director um and I hope that I can keep doing that um I don't I don't really just want to be known for one thing I kind of want to be able to adapt and explore and express and um and be more on my toes. <laughs> um, and then moving over to the sort of least favorite myth about, about the fracking industry. Gosh, there were so many. I mean, um, I know it was really sort of, this sort of narrative structure was really built on um, sort of unpacking the common myths that the fracking industry would use in order to, to, to promote this idea of hydraulic fracturing. I mean, that was this idea that there are absolutely zero cases, zero you know, documented cases that fracking has ever contaminated water sources. And the film really sort of unpacked that. And you know, those documented cases really refers to non-disclosure agreements um, of which there are many, many cases of, of people who've been really badly impacted by contaminated waters, contaminated or sort of polluted air. Um, you know, and, and so that was really um, the main the main thing behind Unearth. And I think back then I really was, um, I was way more in touch with like the many things that were frustrating me about the industry. But I think if I look back now, the, you know, with that perspective, I think the overall um, thing that really frustrated me, and that was also something I used to get a lot in my interviews with, with gas companies and fossil fuel industries was, I think also because I was quite young and, and because I was a woman, I was often just dismissed anyway. But on top of that was this idea that um, that the world isn't ready to transition to renewable energy, that, you know, any thinking of, of a fair, or just or equitable green economy is entirely impossible and that it should be ruled out. And those arguments where you just, you know, you're still getting those today. It's like, those are very carefully positioned arguments to maintain the status quo. Um, I know I think they're cowardly and I think they're designed to serve sort of elite corporate interests. 
I mean, we have so much technology available today. We're busy sending cars into space. We're busy prepping for life on Mars. Um, we, we really can, if we want to, put our heads together and try and figure out how to, how to make the leap um, to a far more sustainable way of living. But it, it takes political will. It takes undoing rampant sort of runaway capitalism. You know, we need more decentralization, more localization. We need local community ownership. We, we need just equitable ways of earning incomes, of, of, sort of tossing out consumerism. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, if you, if you think of like how the world got together to fight COVID-19 and, and the race to develop vaccines, it's like, why aren't we getting together like that to, to fight climate change? Um, so I think that was always something that really frustrated me was just that it was impossible that I should just pipe down with this sort of pipe dream <laughs> um, rather than being like, guys, we have all the technology available right now. Um, let's stop investing in sort of fossil fuel research, which, you know, the, the, state the United States subsidizes fossil fuels, the sort of exploration and expansion heavily it always has you know over 400 years and i think that's something that needs to change divesting has has gained a lot of momentum since i started with unearth when it was still this sort of new idea of divesting funds from from fossil fuel corporations and hopefully that just continues to grow from from strength to strength i think just this idea of shutting down a new chapter or a new dawn because it doesn't really serve the current economic system or climate that just infuriates me as you were speaking I was snapping my fingers going yes girl but you couldn't hear me um, <laughs> uh, I definitely agree with what you're saying and that is also a myth that really bothers me it's a really lazy way to to deal with the issue oh no well we're not ready yet um the world's not ready it's yeah so I, I completely agree with you I mean Chad and I thought you know it's it's kind of um no as what you were saying now I mean I really think that it's, those those excuses are absolutely lazy um, and they're also very strategic because you're deliberately limiting the discussion to suit one sort of way of doing things and for me it just like it just kind of feeds into everything that's wrong in the world right now into these sort of existing dominant power structures that need to be undone into workplaces that aren't representative into education systems that aren't inclusive and not allowing those voices absolutely. to absolutely to to be empowered and then to enter the workplace as well to to throw their weight behind sort of a different uh, point of view and it, it really is like you know for me it's like really symptomatic of like the overall sort of power systems that need to be dismantled or, or just changed and and hopefully that we you know we are sort of we are chipping away at that and I mean, I haven't been at the forefront of, of sort of fossil fuel extraction storytelling for the, for the last few years. So I, I, would, I would be cautious to say that I'm, my finger is on the pulse, but I, I do sense that, that you know, we, we haven't seen that massive shift as much as the science is abundantly clear that climate change is, is here and we are really seeing the impacts. And we were when I was, you know, making Unearthed. It's just like the fact that we haven't really caught on to that as a, from like a global shift point of view is is super frustrating when most laymen would say that that's something that they'd be interested in but you know the political and corporate structures um are enjoying the way things are at the moment so we know conclusively that fracking and especially the lack of rehabilitation afterwards is really bad for the environment and for local communities for a number of reasons including cancer poisoning from the water etc 
But why is it still even being considered? Is it really just all about the money? I heard an interesting question because I'm like, I think, I think, I mean, yeah, I'd like to think that I'm inherently sort of quite an, opt- an optimist, right? I feel like that that suits my energy better. <laughs> um, so, you know, often when I do do work on these stories and or you watch films and it like all comes down to like greed as the motive, I'm like, but really, are we really that basic as human beings? And, you know, so often you find that that is the case. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, in South Africa, particularly, though, it's it's slightly different. I think if you look at if when I was spending a lot of time in, in the States and, and I was I was really sort of um, uncovering a lot of cases and really getting very, very close to sort of some sketchy, dangerous places that I should not have been on been in on my own. But bless your naivety of your 20s. And um, the States is very much like about greed, I think, there in terms of money extraction industry it's been there for a long time it's kind of a part of the american sort of fabric in a way particularly if you look at those, those sort of states that where that's always been the case if things like you know west virginia it was like the timber industry then it was the the gas industry and, and that kind of thing but i think in south africa it was very really diff- it was different because it was shale gas was being and is being promoted as a way to change our energy mix this this sort of idea that this will help us get off our our massive reliance on on coal um which is something we do need to address i mean we like the majority of south africa's energy comes from coal and that's that's incredibly outdated and, and worrying but at the same time, you know, shale gas isn't necessarily the silver bullets. I mean, there's serious questions as to how long this will take to come online and how expensive it will be because you're drilling twice the depths here than you are in the States. So it's it's a lot more costly. And South Africa doesn't have any gas infrastructure at all. So like massive questions around how that's really going to be like a meaningful um, variable in terms of shaking up our energy mix. And I think outside of that, in South Africa, you know, we also desperately need job creation and, and upliftment in rural areas. I come from the crew and I like drive through, you know, many crew towns when I when I go home. And it's it's quite easy to get behind any kind of massive industry that will that'll set up shop in these areas where trade is struggling, where those socioeconomic dis, socioeconomic disparities, you know, just continue. Um, and I think this is really like the nexus, this this nexus of energy pressure with rolling power cuts from ESCOM and, you know, a desperate need for employment and economic stimulation. You can see why something like fracking could be an, an attractive offer. And, you know, that's why it's, it's, a, it's for me, it's a far more challenging conversation in South Africa. And, you know, I, I struggled with that a lot with Unearth because I was initially very optimistic about it as a young South African and, you know, it's hard. It's you can really get these conversations can be really difficult, especially as like as a as a as a white privileged filmmaker from the Karoo. It's very easy for me to wave the flag of like the environment and climate change when there are people who have been systematically held back with South Africa's past and who are like, you know what, I just I just want a fair chance of being able to have a stable income. And I think that's why it was it is remains and was a very difficult conversation to have in South Africa. And, you know, hopefully I was able to get that, you know, do those nuances justice in the film and try and just present information and, and just, you know, ask a ton of questions. It's so interesting that you mentioned the, the uptake of renewables and 
And you were also talking about just transitions earlier and, and whether the transit this new energy transition that is happening is, you know, will it will it leave people behind or will it be just? And I to quote my lecturer uh, at at Silamash University, Mark Swilling, he said something very optimistic the other day. And he said, we mustn't forget how quick the uptake of renewables have been and that they've beat some of the most positive climate models or, or, or models that were done in the past that, that looked at how quickly we could uptake renewables. So that is one thing I wanted to add, which is quite perhaps interesting to, to note as well. No, no, absolutely. That is so true. And if you, you know, also if you think, I think, again, just going back to the, um, to the vaccines and just seeing how quickly when given a serious threat, the world can really rally behind something is like, it's amazing. I mean, here we are a year later and we've, you know, you've got many countries just sort of pushing ahead of South Africa. We've only, you know, really rolling it out now with the healthcare workers and things, but it's like, wow, can we not, can we not get behind like a much bigger cause, you know, which is really like threatening our existence such as climate change. But I agree, absolutely. And I think that's, um, that's definitely something that we can be positive about is that thankfully there are alternatives, you know, with, with shell gas. If shell gas was the only thing that was being proposed in the Karoo as like the only way in which we could develop those communities and, and, and to help change our energy mix, then that would be a different conversation. But the, the, like the massive uh, sort of elephant in the room is that it is not the only option that we have. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. But Joe, I want to move on quickly. I want to ask you, at the moment, influences and role models. Who do you look for, who do you look to for inspiration in your work? And what guidance do you have for young people going into an overly saturated industry competing with platforms such as TikTok? <laughs> I get this question a lot, and I it's it's um it's a uh, you know I I think I'm. I think I've been very strict in terms of how I sort of curate my my sort of Instagram feeds and those kind of things. So I'm really just dialed into like amazing, talented, real, genuine people who are making a mark in many, many different fields. And and so that's really helped me, you know, um, I suppose just feel like I'm in this uh, ecosystem of of support and 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 and, and goodness. Um, I think you know we a friend a good friend of mine um, uh, who I met while making on Earth Ariel who's is from New York he he always hailed arts and science and, you know this idea that if you were to invest your money and time or your attention anywhere it should be in arts and the science um, and I think I'm you know I'm just I'm incredibly inspired by women and BIPOC leaders in arts and science and particularly in South Africa I I just so humbled uh, by an, like an absolute awe of the work being done by Noel and, and Pragna Koch at Newf in Durban, um, where they're building inclusive wildlife film communities and empowering black filmmakers to participate in a space that's usually dominated by white storytellers. And uh, it's just been amazing to see what they've done in such a short amount of time. And it's so, 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 so necessary when we look at conservation and wildlife and, and allowing South Africans and Africans to take ownership of their sort of natural history or their natural sort of uh, resources and, 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 and their sort of where they come from and, and the wildlife and the ecosystems that are in that space rather than sort of BBC crews or Nat Geo crews kind of flying in and, and telling those stories. Um, 
you know, they're amazing people. I think of um, the botanist Rupert Quipman. I just love that he's in my feed and that I can see the work that he's doing, particularly in the Cape, sort of ecosystems. Roshanna Gray, who's working under felt and sea and, and just doing amazing work, educating people around foraging and, and what's in our backyard. Paula Kahumba in Kenya, you know, they're just, they're incredible people um, out there and working, you know, from all ends of the spectrum from, you know, sort of more arts world, which is like filmmakers and storytellers and photographers to people, you know, amazing scientists and botanists and, and that kind of thing. And I think it's, yeah, I'm excited to see it. I just sort of hope that my echo chamber is being reflected meaningfully in, in the world out there. Um, I think with your question around TikTok um, and sort of young people trying to get into a, a, an industry that's really quite saturated. Um, again, I suppose I sort of go back to what I said earlier around formats. I'm, I'm a slightly sort of format agnostic um, which is quite controversial as a filmmaker because I'm supposed to be hailing the feature film as like the like the holy grail. Um, but I, I think I don't think it's necessarily bad that there's so many platforms. Um, I think what is tough though is is finding your voice and and backing yourself in a world where authenticity is harder and harder to trace. Um, so I, I think for me that's really the nugget is like. You tell your stories find you know like your cause you want to get behind I think there's amazing ways you can do that I often have rallied behind causes or being more effective as a citizen watching a cause unfold on Instagram on Insta stories than I have been waiting for that film to come out for you know four years when that cause has somewhat we've sort of missed the opportunity so for me platforms I don't know I think there's there are unique there are unique opportunities there and storytelling has just got to sort of change to to suit those those mediums, but I do think for me the concern is more on a broader level is not one of the concern I think on a broader level is more like if I were to offer any words of advice it would be to sort of yeah just trust your authenticity to sort of just work really hard on finding what that is and and when you do think you have a sense of it just stick to it and just keep nurturing it. Um, the industry can be really, really tough and, and it doesn't always reward that kind of thing. And you're always thinking you should be changing and swapping. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of um, imposter syndrome <laughs> in this industry. I don't know if it's just me, but I get the sense that a lot of people struggle with that. And I think if you can overcome that, if you can really find your voice and if you can nurture it and, and work with integrity, then, then you're A for a way. I think for me, that's the biggest challenge. It's not so much about platforms the good always wins and you're always going to get the audience it's just about trusting yourself thank you so much for sharing that I, I actually asked particularly because um I've got a couple of close friends who are in film and I'm always wondering how how they're going to be uh perhaps not competing is the wrong word but but shining using their auth authenticity in this industry but I want to ask you another question. So I found this quote that, that you said, and I'm going to read it to the audience. This is why the world is at a crossroads. We need to make a massive decision. Are we going to continue with this era of extreme energy or are we going to try and do things better? Are we going to prioritize the transition to a low or carbon-free future? This is where the South African government is currently sitting. So what are your predictions given the access to information that you have from researching on earth and, and, and you know, knowing people in the industry, both good and bad? Well, the, 
the South African government, you know, when I was working on Unearth, there was the, the moratorium was placed on drilling in order for them to do more research. And um, it was quite a cautious approach from the government. Um, and since then, you know, I think the government, you know, once they, they came out with the regulations, they certainly have just said that they are in support of fracking and, and exploring for shale gas. Um, I think that and you're seeing it, you know, in Botswana and other countries flaring up as well. But I think the question is really, you know, how long will this energy take to to come online or sort of to, to, to become a part of our energy mix and at what cost? Um, and I think in that cost, we really have to include the massive amounts of methane that's leaked and deliberately flared because um, you have to when you're drilling for gas uh, with fracking, which which really undermines any claims that it's, that it's a cleaner fuel. I mean, methane is far more potent greenhouse gas and carbon dioxide. Um, so there's a lot of sketchy data around the fact that it's cleaner. Um, and I think you also have to say, you know, in all this time, because it just is this like really massive industry. And I think because countries like South Africa or Botswana or anywhere else outside the United States doesn't have an existing gas infrastructure to tap into. Um, it's like in all this time we were trying to figure out how we're going to do this, how we're going to afford this, how we're going to build the roads to these places, how are we going to find, you know, the handful of people that we're going to employ in that area. Um, is there a chance for something else? You know, and, and is there a chance for renewable energy from, from really successful programs such as the independent power procurement program to take hold? And I think you've already seen that. Like I've, I, I was working on an earth with this idea that it was gonna happen, well idea, but I mean, it was definitely like the talk of the town back then. And it was like any minute now, Charles was going to, was gonna, was gonna drill a hole. And, and, and for sure, you know, that was also like a part of hype because they're obviously supposed to explore for gas and, and sort of do feasibility studies and and EMPs and things um so so yeah I think looking back now it's been interesting that you know they haven't really the industry hasn't really taken off um who knows what could happen tomorrow but in all this time renewable energy and and um, the sort of technology around that has been improving and been taking hold and I think it's just amazing that in South Africa, we're not having the discussion of like, well, what about renewable energy? We literally have an incredibly successful program um, through the independent power producers. And, I, and that's just been like incredible to see. So yeah, I think I think that for me is, is kind of always been the thing. It's like really, it's about time and money <laughs> and, and, and allowing that to play out um, more than it is about um, like corporate powers, expediting things to suit themselves if that makes sense absolutely no I, I definitely hear what you're saying but joe i sense you have a pretty unrelenting search for for the truth so how do you manage the gray areas in for example showing empathy and giving privacy you know or capturing something raw and authentic with the ability to change minds what are some of the trade-offs that you play with in storytelling in your industry Oh, such a good question. Because I'm definitely one of, I'm a director who would first, who would immediately switch off a camera if the person in front of the camera was feeling uncomfortable or if, if it wasn't serving them anymore. And, and I think that I know most film, many film directors would, would do the opposite because that's great storytelling, right? Those like the nuggets you want on camera when someone starts crying or they show that they're uncomfortable. It's like, those are, those are like gems that you look for in the edit. But 
I can just never do that. I like there were many moments in Unearth that um that I or like interactions that I had with people where I just didn't roll on that moment because it wasn't fair. Like that person had just lost a loved one. So did the film suffer for that? Did it lose its gravitas? Maybe, but my I'm sort of dialed slightly differently. For me, it's always working with integrity and respect for the person that's in front of the lens. And and I that's still something anyone who works with me now, whether it's in dark or commercials, they they know that's like a big part of how I work. It's conducive, respectful, calm environments, the, and and it's um it's sort of a flat hierarchy, and we're all equals, and we're all working on this together. And everybody has to respect the person who's sharing their story. I mean, that's a real person in front of the lens with their name um, on the screen, and and they you know exchange they're entering an exchange, and that's an incredibly generous one. So. I, yeah, I think for me, it's I'm I'm incredibly, um, yeah, incredibly dedicated to always making sure that that we're working with authenticity, that we're checking our blind spots, that we have a research team that's diverse and that's informing us and and calling us out when we're making errors while shooting. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I often wonder like in years to come, if I look back at my body of work and, and wish that I, you know, hadn't stopped rolling and like gotten in there and got in the drama or, or whatever it is. But I don't know. I didn't really think for me, it's more important. I can sleep at night knowing that I've, I've sort of did my best as a filmmaker and a storyteller, but I could still call those people or approach them and, and that we, you know, we still have a good relationship. So, I mean, in terms of advice and, and how you manage those gray areas, yeah, I think you just have to have a really strong handle on your gut and your intuition. Um, if it feels strange, if it feels unethical, it probably is. Um, and I think just approach it as a human being first rather than a filmmaker. Like that gets, that's, and that's a tough thing. It's something that you're always going to wrestle with, right? Because filmmaking is incredibly competitive and there's a lot of pressure on you when you do get the opportunity opportunity to like raise funds for an independent film to go out there and then just like get it all in the can but yeah I, I think you have to show yourself as a, as a human being first and that the person you're you're dealing with as a human being as well and um and sort of let that inform your decisions that's lovely advice I really appreciate that thank you thank you so much for sharing so I've recently been reading a book called Rockwater Life by Leslie Green. And it looks at Cape Town. Um, I'm not sure if you've read the book, um, but uh, it, it looks at Cape Town from a whole lot of different perspectives uh, in the first couple of chapters. And what really struck me is it, it looks at Cape Town from perspectives that I've never heard of before, obviously learning history of, of South Africa from, you know, the colonizers perspective. You, you hear only a certain side of history, which I've now tried to unlearn and relearn. So reading this book, it talks about the name of Table Mountain, which is the obviously big famous mountain in Cape Town, uh, whose name was Hurikwajo back in the day before the colonizers arrived. Uh, it was the, the, the people, the Kowena who lived there. You know, I really want to understand the difference between perception and reality, um, between going into an area and filming it and what you actually see. And I ask this because I've lived and worked in Cape Town CBD and have a very romanticized and privileged notion of my city. So that's why I ask you this. It's a massive question. Yeah, and 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 um, hats off to Leslie Green. She's she's amazing. I, 
I've met her a few times when we did um, screenings of Unearth at, at UCT, um, which she uh, arranged for her, her classes. Um, I think she's in the States now or somewhere. Um, she's amazing. I haven't read the book yet, but I, I, I definitely need to put that on my list. Um, yeah, Cape Town, oh, Cape Town can get you down. Um, you know, on the one hand, you have these like incredible, this beauty, this beauty and these natural resources. And, you know, it's a city that has a mountain and forests and a beach and um, very uh, unique ecosystems and, and fauna and flora. Um, and it's it's a it's a wonderful place to live in when you can focus on enjoying those natural resources without having to worry about how you're going to put bread on the table. And I and I think that just it's just the city just like blows my mind on a daily basis in in how you can have these incredibly contradictory experiences. You know, you read about these like mansions in Clifton that sell for like an unimaginable figure to to foreign sort of yeah visitors or um and then you know you you just have to drive for 20 minutes on the end too or where you know and, and see how other people are living and how and just it's just like it's it's mental how that how that can exist in in one space and i think that's really what's so heartbreaking about what apartheid did to the city in terms of just from an architectural spatial planning point of view, just really wreck things. And, and, and it's just like, we've never really fixed that or, or, or paid it enough attention from a meaningful sort of long-term strategy point of view. Um, and, and it just, you know, those, I've been in Cape Town now for 10 years um, and I, I just have never really seen any real commitment um, to address that from, from a governmental point of view and also from people with means uh, and who enjoy the fine life in Cape Town. Um, I think they're amazing NPOs if you think of like Reclaim the City and, and the work that they're doing. And they, there are a lot of really important um, sort of movements out there that are that are working to sort of um, share information and, and sort of build and then from a legal point of view, get behind cases that we, we need to support sort of a lower middle income housing um, in, in, in the CBD or in the sort of affluent areas of Cape Town. So, you know, I think there, there's a lot of incredibly inspiring people who are my age and our age out there who are really taking this head on. But yeah, I, it's, it's, I don't really know if I'm giving you a, a concrete answer. For me, it's very much like an experiential thing. It's the fact that I can, that I can be, I can be in my home where I have access to electricity and running water, and it's, I, I live comfortably, and, and I can hop in my car and 15 minutes away as someone who's honestly afraid of leaving their home at night to go to sort of shared ablution facilities because of the threat of like gender-based violence and being robbed I mean it's just like it just it's it is mind-blowing and and I think that it's a it's going to be it's a huge thing to address and to fix um and I hope it's it's like front of mind for the people who have the ability to change those things but I just I just am really I get quite deflated when I see that like it hasn't really changed much um and it's it's so complicated where does one begin i think it's a, a matter of balancing the those who who know what we need to do to change because there are some incredible solutions 
for for trans for transfer uh, transformation and transitions um but it's about capacitating those people and really giving listening to those voices that are coming through um because i i do believe that the solutions are out there it's just it's just a matter of listening and giving the you know passing the mic but before i ask my last question that's so though, true yeah i would say i would say cape town is not good at passing the mic and it's not good at turning down the volume on whiteness and the volume on on privilege and the volume on favoring sort of massive financial gains and these sort of you hear about these deals that were made where they sell pieces of land you know prime property and, and that kind of thing and i think that's what's disappointing it's like the city really just it's like it doesn't even look accidental right it's just like just no real effort of engaging with communities and community organizations and listening and building sort of community led solutions absolutely <laughs> no, i completely agree with you and joe before i ask my last question i just want to say to the to the to you thank you so much for joining me and for your time and for your considered responses and for any of the audience who would like to follow more of the work that you do joe's active on twitter uh, sorry on instagram and you can follow her at Jolyn Minar. But Joe, your last question. Given your expertise, what question should I have asked you? Well, this one is this is such a good question. No one has ever asked, like put the put it back at me. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question should I have asked you. I would say you haven't asked me what I've had for breakfast, um, which is something in the film world we always that's the first question we ask everybody because it's like a it's something we do to test the audio levels. So when we have a contributor sitting down, we have the mic up and we need to test sound. We typically say, what did you have for breakfast? <laughs> so we didn't do that. Um, I'm assuming because the sound recording was fine. Um, Given the expertise, what question should I have asked you? No, I think you did an amazing job of, of really sort of traversing my interests and in, 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 in topics that I've dealt with, but then also diving into who I am as a person. Thank you for joining me today at Earthcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Let's chat next episode, where I will be asking more creatives and intellectual disruptors about making decisions at the margin. See you next time.